0: I'm Kate Daniels. Food, safety, health, nutrition, these are all topics so critical in our daily life and it's so easy to be confused by advertising and packaging. Should we be washing those foods that say they've been triple washed? Here to help us gain some understanding is Dr. Mark Tamplin, whose specialty is medical microbiology. He was appointed by the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture and served three terms on the U.S. National Advisory Committee on the Microbiological Criteria for Foods. So he is steeped in the science and joins us now to answer these questions and tell us the story. Dr. Mark Tamplin, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning.
1: Good morning, Kate. It's a great pleasure to be with you.
0: What an inspiring and maybe shocking and hopefully really educational opportunity we have this morning in having a conversation with you, Dr. Tamplin. So thank you for being with us. I'm quite looking forward to this and feeling that people are going to be inspired.
1: Thanks very much. I'm looking forward to it also.
0: So I feel that there's a a two-pronged approach that we have in this time together. One, of course, the real uh, basis and the fundamental part of our conversation has to do with your science background and, and the work that you do in microbiology and how it affects our whole food source. So that's a huge, huge thing, isn't it?
1: It is. I mean, our food supply is its not as safe as we'd like it to be, and it's, it's always a challenge for us to be able to, you know, manage the hazards that could occur in the food supply um, and to do this, you know, with uh, managing human behavior. So it's quite difficult to do that, as you can imagine, and so we have—we try to put the best set safeguards in place that we can to protect public health.
0: So that is, is critically important, and we're really going to do some good focus on that. But I also want to mention that it, with all this research and, and this foundation of your work, that uh, you have branched into being an author. You, you're you using this as uh, your work to a creative outlet that in a, a, writing this book, Fage. It's cor- that's correct, isn't it, fash? Yes, yes, it is. Yes. So fash gives us an opportunity in a fictional world to take that science, and sometimes uh, that gets the message across more so than really being able to get people to look at and understand the science of, of what's going on.
1: You're exactly right, Kate. You, you hit the nail on the head in that I've been, uh, been doing research and teaching students for uh, almost 30 years now, And uh, my intent in writing the book, I mean, I get a lot of pleasure from doing it myself, but also to be able to increase the size of the classroom that I talk to. um, I was quite inspired, you know, over the years reading books like um, by James Michener, you know, about real history but with fictionalized characters and and equally uh, books uh, like uh, Michael Crichton's book, Jurassic Park, The Andromeda Strain, some of the earliest science fiction books that I read. And so what I wanted to do was to be able to let the public know more about what microbiology is, um, and also to do it, you know, in an exciting page turn away that I've done in my book, FAISHE, um, to be able to explain to them what these bacteria are. And importantly, in this day and age, to to identify where we have some critical gaps and where we might fill them in. And that gives us then, you know, some of the suspense in the book, as the protagonist Sam Townsend tries to stop this uh, homegrown terrorist from unleashing this pathogen on the on the U.S. population.
0: So with that kind of a science fiction approach to it, how much of that do you feel or do you know can be or has been partially reality in our lives?
1: Well, we know that currently uh, in, in our lives that food safety is a very important factor because one in six of us, on average each year has a foodborne infection. And that's about 50 million infections in the United States um, per year with up to 3,000 people that die from those and many people that, you know, more that are hosp- hospitalized. So it's always going to be a challenge to us. It, today, where our biggest challenge is, is around ready to eat foods. And the ready to eat foods are those that we bring into our home and we normally, you know, maybe heat them a little bit, but we don't really do the thorough cooking that we would expect to do to be able to kill pathogens. So in Faj, I talk about scenarios that involve ready-to-eat produce, specifically what can happen in our uh, vegetable-growing fields. And I'm not referring necessarily to potatoes and the kinds of, uh, you know, crops that we're going to buy and bring home and typically cook before we eat them, where we would kill anything that's dangerous on them, but you know, increasingly we see in the news that there are outbreaks related to lettuce and spinach, those kinds of things. The most that's done is they're rinsed and then they're brought into our homes and we put them in our mouths. So what I'm trying to do in the book is to build on that existing problem we have, but to also expose, you know, a vulnerability that we have to malicious attacks. But but what I'm trying to get across in the book is that we can do something about it.
0: So, when you mention lettuce and spinach, that's such a critical thing. We love the convenience. I know I love the convenience of those bagged salads because I can quickly rip them open and toss together, you know, what I feel is going to be healthy and nutritious. But am I needing to rethink how I approach this?
1: Well, I, no, you you don't really because, and again, this is why these foods are so um are so unique in, in our in our lives, and that in food in general, as you probably know, Kate, is we have an unusual amount of trust that everything is done correctly. We go to a restaurant, we have no idea exactly what's happened to our food, the plate comes to our table, we pick up our fork and put the food in our mouth. So, and things like you're talking about the lettuces and the spinach, the, the, the types of leafy grains that we put in our salads there's nothing of significance that we can do at home uh, other than cook it. And we're not going to do that. Um, So with these types of products, they have to be handled properly on the farm. So that means the irrigation water needs to be safe. It means that something as simple as the location of the farm in relationship to, let's say, a dairy farm or a poultry farm where dust from those Uh, from those farms can carry pathogens that we know occur in those animals over onto our produce. We need to know that that has been done safely. So the geography, the the irrigation water has to be done well. And then when it comes into our house, we're assuming that it has been washed, and that's what the uh, produce companies do is they wash those. The most we can do is rinse. But the key thing I'd like to get across is that when when a pathogen attaches to something like a leafy green, the most we can do is probably remove about half of the organisms by washing and rinsing. And that's why it's so important that that entire food chain is handled properly.
0: So I, I can hear now that there are many stages, really critical stages here. When it comes into our home uh, is that last stage. And so kind of working backwards, because this is what we've brought into our homes, You are suggesting, then, that we should at least rinse? And what kind of water, or is it just water that we use to rinse those greens?
1: Well, in our home, uh, we should just rinse them with water because that's going to provide primarily a mechanical action to remove bacteria. So, for example, if you you think about lettuce and spinach, where we've got the wrinkled leaves and there's little grooves and crevices that the organisms can attach to and when we look at it at a microscopic level, the bacteria, when they bind when they land on that leaf, and then they then they um, they just don't sit there loosely, they typically produce substances that adhere them to that surface because they're trying to secure to obtain nutrients from that plant surface themselves. And so we can rinse them. Again, we're going to remove some of them. But uh, what we're counting on is that everything that happened before that, that when they were, for example, triple rinsed, uh, s- such as with a pre-cut salad that, you know, you buy in a bag in a food store, that that rinsing has been done well. But most importantly is that what happened on the farm itself, so when they were out in the field growing, that that, you know, these dust particles and the irrigation water, uh, were of high quality. So that means that there has to be a very tight partnership between myself, yourself, consumers, and the food industry as well as the government that provides us with oversight.
0: And that feels a little uh, unwieldy in a way, or it <laughs> feels like it, we have a, not a lot of control over it.
1: No, exactly. And when we look at the recent epidemiology information around, foodborne outbreaks, where we have seen a very significant increase compared to other areas where we've actually seen decreases in certain food types and foodborne illness, is in ready-to-eat foods, particularly the produce category. We've had outbreaks around the world because the industry is consolidating, uh, and you have larger corporations owning more fields, you have massive operations, and because more people want to purchase ready-to-eat foods, like a pre-cut salad Then if there is a contamination event, and we've seen some of these in California, for example, they're not the only state, but there are large, as we know, uh, lettuce operations and and produce operations there, that there has been contaminated groundwater. There has been dust that's been believed to have come over from another farm. And then when all of that product gets out in the marketplace, we either see a recall uh, that happens before we know anyone is sick, and that's the best scenario, But many times we don't know about the contamination until we know people um, are suffering from a foodborne illness. And then the epidemiologists, like the CDC, have been able to associate it with a particular product with a particular company.
0: Some of this, considering how small our world really is and the things that, that go on and the idea of contamination coming through the air, would be difficult for us you know, say halfway around the world to really be able to control any kind of contaminant following falling on these big fields of greens that are being grown?
1: Exactly. It's very difficult to control it. And the, so what we can most effectively do are primarily two or three things. Um, we can be sure that when these farms are being set up um, or if they're converting, a, you know, say it was a cattle farm before or some other crop and they're now moving it into leafy greens. We need to be sure that they do a survey of the area to ensure that there are no contaminating um, farms, such as you know what we what we would think of with poultry, we have salmonella contamination or, or dairy cattle farms where we can have salmonella and E. coli. We want to be sure that we have that right geographical location and that takes into consideration. The way water moves over the land and under the land, and also where the wind blows. So those are things that are currently part of existing food safety plans uh, for our farms. In addition to that, we need very good on-farm security, and this is something that I, you know, bring out in my book five Is that this is an area that we that we skipped over. So after, um, again, I'm not trying to focus on just the malicious issues because that's what makes my story interesting. But it does bring out the scenario that we have, we don't have the on-farm security as we do in a food processing plant. And after 9-11, when we knew that the bad guys could do something, uh, we really tightened up security, and the government helped companies do that around food processing plants. So there you've got a roof, you've got doors and walls, you've got security knowing who's coming in, you've got cameras and such. What we don't have is we don't have that same in-depth, organized type of security system that goes on farms. So we talk about soil coming from these other types of operations, but we also need to be sure that when people come onto the farms, they're not accidentally carrying things that they shouldn't be carrying onto farms um, when they're handling the produce. And we need to be sure that we don't have people uh, flying drones. That's something I bring out in my book is that drones are so important now in agriculture. They help companies precisely um, put down fertilizers in the right places where they're needed through cameras that look for weeds and and growth. So we're having now more aerial uh, instruments, more aerial craft that we're utilizing for good things, but we need to ensure that that traffic that's over top of our field is is what we want.
0: So in this case, drones are really a very positive element in farming.
1: Extremely positive. I've... Um, I, I visited some farms recently, and they were they demonstrated how these uh, drones work. So they're, they they plot in courses. They give them the GPS coordinates for the entire farm, and they fly around and they go back and forth and they map the entire farm with a camera. And then they analyze those images uh, again, looking for weeds, looking for areas where there is not enough growth, which indicates a place that they may want to apply fertilizer. So it leads to very efficient systems for targeting specifically where you want to put things, and we know that more of the you know fertilizer trucks are automated. They're can they're controlled by GPS systems, almost like robots now. So it, all of that's getting very sophisticated. Um, and, and again, it's something that's important to us. It'll make our food supply more um, should be more cost effective and, and efficient, and and better products. But security uh, remains something that we really need to be aware of. Who's on our farms? And, um, and, and are they the
0: right people that we want there? With mentioning drones and thinking of that airspace makes me think about flight patterns, about planes. We think of this innocently, but uh, perhaps when they're flying high, it's not so much an issue. What if a farm is somewhere near an airport, maybe a small airport or even a large airport, planes taking off? How does that impact the farm and what's growing there?
1: Well, I would say in general, as long as the farm is not too close to where, you know, you might be getting exhaust emissions that could potentially, um, you know, contaminate the the food product, probably wouldn't necessarily be toxic, but, you know, it it would probably impart some quality changes to it that we wouldn't want, and the smell might not be great. But, in general, there aren't major concerns with with uh, with airports, with aircraft landing., um, but again, you don't want to have just like we talked about poultry plant poultry farms and cattle farms. You don't want your produce farm to be in a situation where contamination is a fairly probable um, uh, you know possibility. So uh, you know keeping a good perimeter around um, a good space around anything that could potentially contaminate, the products would be important.
0: Are there these kinds of controls that would uh, structure the, the kinds of farms that can be within uh, close proximity to each other, say cattle ranching close to uh, produce gardening? It, who controls that, or is it controlled?
1: Well, it's mostly uh, controlled by the industry. So the industry developed many times what we call voluntary plans, and um, so that's that's sort of a hybrid between what the government might mandate and what the industry might not want to do. So they have these voluntary plans, which is sort of a, a compromise where they they show to regulatory authorities that they have plans in place that they're the ones that are uh, you know putting designing them. Certainly seeking input from government when ne- when needed but that they're putting their own programs together. So we see this increasingly in industry where industry wants to be more in control of inspection systems rather than relying, you know, primarily upon government inspectors. So they have plans that are called HACCP plans, and I'll explain that stands. It's H-A-C-C-P for hazard analysis and critical control points. So basically what that means is that you do a hazard analysis, what could potentially get on your product, then you develop what are called critical control points. And those are things that the industry can do, that the farms can do, to control or reduce or eliminate the possibility of that hazard occurring and then affecting someone who eats the product. So industry puts these, what we call food safety plans together, and historically, they started at the processor, and then they've moved down to, say, retail, to the food stores. What we what's happening now is we're seeing much more uh, interest and, and need to push these down to the farm so that we truly have as much of a farm-to-fork food safety system that's integrated where information is passed down. So when a farm is considering where to do their, put their location in, if they're part of this HACCP voluntary plan, and, I, and because it's voluntary, not everyone is, but the larger corporations would then the, being sure that the location of their farm is such that they will not have contamination coming from other farms that might have pathogens. And as you can imagine, the litigation, the cost of a foodborne outbreak, the re- cost of a recall is tremendous in what it does to a reputation. I mean, we've seen examples of that with products like ice cream with Bluebell. You know, that happened a year or so ago. They're still trying to recover from that negative publicity. So it benefits the industry to do a good job.
0: And that's where, of course, then we benefit. If we are able to then be comfortable in trusting that the food supply that we are going to be purchasing is really safe, uh, that really lifts a lot of stress out of our lives, doesn't it?
1: Exactly. And so, you know, we, we really need to integrate more of food safety into our classrooms, particularly, you know, when we're very young in elementary school Unfortunately, many of those kinds of classes that taught these very practical things about how to properly handle foods to prevent food safety problems have been some of the first to be cut, you know, like home economics or family and consumer science courses, um, you know, in place for the more science and mathematics courses. So it's a shame that that's happened because those kind of life skills are so important that we carry into our home. And again, where that even translates into another sector other than the home, and that is restaurants, because you know if you don't have that right training early on and you're not doing those six things in your own home, if you're then working in a restaurant or in a retail facility that's preparing food for other people to eat, um, you know you forget you may not even know that you should be cooking food uh, to a certain temperature. and the, the types of things that we hope more people will be doing is keeping food out of that danger zone. Don't leave it in that temperature of 40 degrees to 140 for more than four hours to be sure we don't cross-contaminate food. So one of the worst scenarios, and it can happen with lettuce, is that someone says, oh, I'm going to rinse my lettuce off of the sink. Um, That's good, but they, they, they saw the chicken in the same sink. They forgot to clean and sanitize it, and now they've contaminated their lettuce. And that scenario has happened in homes, and it caused one of the largest outbreaks of salmonellosis in Florida, back in the early 90s from that very scenario. So all those practical skills are really key so that industry and consumers work together to reduce foodborne illness, these 50 million cases per year.
0: And I think that's a a really key figure for us to take to heart is that you were saying it's one in six people will be affected by some kind of a foodborne illness each year, correct?
1: Correct, exactly. Exactly. And, Kate, we know that about 60% of those foodborne infections, so what, 60% of 50 million, Is about 30 million of those foodborne infections, are traced back to an organism that's called norovirus. And many people may have heard of it. Yes. It's that cruise ship virus that, you know, we hear that everyone gets diarrhea, then they have to bring the ship in and they quarantine, uh, quarantine it. That that virus, norovirus, only comes from humans. And so we know exactly where the source is, and it's always unwashed hands after using the bathroom. So we could take care of 30 million of those infections if people would simply wash their hands. It sounds so elementary, but the epidemiological information shows us that that's the reality.
0: It's so amazing that something so simple, and we... We will see posters around our schools and our offices, but I wonder, and and hospitals, I've heard that about uh, in hospitals that sometimes some of the staff might not be as diligent as they should be. So you're saying that is so critical. How do we get that message across then? Well, again, that comes back to things that we
1: need to do early in the, you know, in the development and learning of people as children. Uh, it's such a fundamental principle, and, you know, and, and we all know that we've been in the bathroom and we've, we, we've, we've noticed that someone has come in and hasn't washed their hands, so we know it happens. And so as a way of working around that deficiency, which we know, as I said, exists and it's, it's a current problem is, say, in a restaurant, people you see more people now wearing, wearing gloves, right? Yes. So, but that even has an educational moment that people need to know that they need to change the gloves when they handle something that could be contaminated. Unfortunately, some people, and I think this is, I want to believe that this is, um, you know, the rare cases, is they think of gloves as protecting their hands. If you wear a glove at your home, you're normally doing it so you don't, you know, hurt your hand or get something on your hand. So it's more for your protection. Some people go into restaurants, into hospital catering and environments, in those places that prepare lots of meals, with that mindset. And so they wear the glove everywhere they go. And I'll tell you know, I was w- was told by a person that worked in a restaurant that one of their employees actually wore their gloves into the bathroom. Um, so it sounds so fundamental and and hard to believe, but that is one of the reasons why we have so many foodborne illnesses in the U.S.
0: You are just so great at illuminating this for us, Dr. Tamplin, how simple it is that we could all really take care of so many health issues that surround us. And uh, we've touched on, I think, some key areas that are part of our life on a daily basis and multiple times a day, that uh, it's so critical to underscore that. And I really appreciate how you bring it to us in, in really a very basic and simple form.
1: Well, thank you, Kate. I really appreciate you giving you know me the opportunity to, to pass on some of this information. And I, I hope through uh, you know reading my book, Faj, um, that people can find on my website, marktamplin.com, that they'll see many other kinds of interesting information in there that might illuminate, you know, ways that we can make our food safer.
0: And that's precisely the case is that, uh, as we mentioned early on, that sometimes this information uh, may feel perhaps uh, just too ordinary that or too boring sometimes. Oh, you know, I know all that stuff. A book has a way of bringing the story to life and we really get immersed in it. I think that serves to really underscore the message in a big way.
1: It, it does. It, it gives you a good opportunity to be more creative, obviously, and and to you know develop scenarios and inter- interesting ways of communicating it to people, not doing it you know in a very dry way, uh, like we might do sometimes in the classroom. So I'm, I'm hoping that the book is able to do that, to to illuminate you know some of these issues. But more importantly, um, you know the book does have a good ending, and and so it's not it's not a doom and gloom situation that. It, it would bring out how we actually have a much more control. And, and the title of the book is called FODGE or phage. Um, there's different ways of pronouncing it. And those are little viruses that only kill bacteria. And they're becoming part of our food safety toolkit now. We use those as ways of killing pathogens. So the science is developing uh, those phages are being used in medical situations of treating diseases. And in some cases, people are proposing to actually use drones to put fudge onto vegetable fields as a way of controlling pathogens.
0: That is so fascinating. And what really feels so good about this, Dr. Tamplin, is that you, as a, a- microbiologist, you as the scientist, are able to communicate this in an artistic form in a novel so that we can feel that it's not just some theory, it really has really good science behind it that is truly teaching us.
1: Well, thank you. And and I really do hope that I'm you know, able to expand my classroom, my virtual classroom, to many more people to teach them about microbiology and about food safety. So it's very, very good to do that. And I have two more books in the series that are under under development at the moment, the prequel and the sequel to to FAHJ. So uh, we're even going to be exploring even other scenarios that I think people will find very interesting, particularly new technologies that are coming out that we really haven't quite thought through all the way, and there could be some potential implications on food safety.
0: And FAHJ is spelled... P-H-A-G-E. So an important thing to note because in searching for the book, uh, which is available in some of our typical uh, bookstore sources online, right?
1: Exactly. It's available in all the normal locations, uh, you know, Amazon, Kindle, uh, iTunes, uh, Barnes & Noble, Nook, and and on Google Play. You can find, there's links right to them on my website at markcantle.com.
0: Yes. Great. Thank you for mentioning that once again. So thank you so greatly for taking time with us this morning. I think this has been such an critical and informative conversation, and it really makes such a world of difference in our lives. It's really down to a matter of uh, good health, good life, or the opposite side of that spectrum.
1: Well, thank you, Kate, and it's a real pleasure to, to speak with you, and, and you've had some great questions, and I appreciate you bringing those up. So uh, I hope uh, that we can uh, speak again in the near future.
0: That would be wonderful as the next book comes out, perhaps.
1: Yes, it sounds great.